This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Return with us now to last summer when Black Lives Matter marchers filled the streets everywhere in America, including Los Angeles, and where the L.A. Police Department violated the law by attacking and arresting BLM marchers. That's what a new report commissioned by the L.A. City Council has concluded. For comment, we turn to Carol Sobel. She's a civil rights lawyer and advocate. She's one of the attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in a lawsuit about violent abuses of power by the L.A. police during last summer's protests. She has repeatedly sued the city of L.A. for violating the rights of the homeless population. She spent 20 years working for the ACLU in L.A., In 1997, she left the ACLU to start her own law practice. She also serves on the board of directors of the National Police Accountability Project. Carol Sobel, welcome. Thank you. Well, let's start with the official report to the L.A. City Council and some of the worst offenses, which I thought some of the worst offenses by the LAPD were the way they handled mass arrests. What did the police do there? Well, they did a couple of things. First of all, they decided they would um, arrest people for violating the curfew. That is an infraction under the Los Angeles Municipal Code. As a matter of law, it violates the Eighth Amendment to the United States Constitution to put somebody in jail for an infraction. An infraction is not a jailable offense at any time. So why, if you are citing people at the outset for an infraction, you have no ability to put them in jail. They did that, I think, clearly, because they wanted to get people off the streets and not for any other reason. They arrested hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, They put in the curfew mainly at that point because they were unprepared. And why they were unprepared is just a mystery to all of us. It isn't like we have not seen mass demonstrations. So the first night, I think almost everybody was arrested for a curfew violation. Some might have been arrested for failure to disperse. They handcuffed them. They wrote out citations. They stuffed the citations in people's belts and in their pockets and said, we're going to release you in a few minutes and let you go. They held them in handcuffs for about an hour. Then they came back and said, sorry, we're going to take you and book you. So now they had hundreds of people. They had no capacity to book them. And they put them on buses. This is the height of the pandemic in June. They put them on buses, closed, close quarters, um, no masks on the officers, Um, They pulled people's masks off their faces to create exposure. No water, no bathroom access. People were urinating on themselves. The handcuffs were tight and they didn't care. Now, you might say that, well, this was unexpected and it was a couple of hundred people. So, you know, how would the uh, LAPD be prepared for this? In 2011, when they removed the Occupy protesters from City Hall lawn, they had several hundred people, they were unprepared then. They did the exact same thing. That was the first time we experienced the large mass arrests with no water access, no bathroom access, being held in handcuffs. Then I think it was in a concrete, on the floor of a concrete garage. And that was an event they had planned for for two months. (laughs) So so I don't think that saying this was a spontaneous, unexpected event changes it because 
once you settled the Occupy case, you should have said, okay, we might need to arrest a couple of hundred people at the same time again. And how are we going to process them? So let's go fast forward to the Ferguson protests in 2014. They arrested a couple of hundred people. They brought in a mobile field force booking system. So they have these. They have mobile bookings. And they, they run my clients on Skid Row all the time. And they know who has an outstanding warrant. They can do all that in the field when they want to. Another big problem was the police use of weapons that caused serious injuries. The official report to the city council on the protest discusses the LAPD use of something called the 40 millimeter less lethal weapon. It shoots something they call sponge rounds, which are intended to, quote, incapacitate but not kill. Several people have sued after being seriously injured and hospitalized by these 40 millimeter less lethal rounds. The LA Times posted a video, police body cam video, of a protester being shot in the head by one of these while he was trying to run away. This was not downtown, but on uh, May 30th on Beverly Boulevard, east of Fairfax, outside CBS TV City. The victim was a 24-year-old former Marine who was hospitalized for four days, two of them in intensive care. What's your opinion of the 40-millimeter less lethal weapon? Well, just to, to be clear about that particular case that you raised, the police who shot him say it was an accident. They were aiming for someone behind him. <laughs> and that points out the problem of these weapons. They are very precise weapons. They hit who you shoot at. Um, they are not used, they're not meant to disperse a crowd. They are, as you say, meant to incapacitate. No less lethal weapon is supposed to be have impact above the waist because it could strike a vital organ, it could cause a heart arrhythmia, it could cause a brain bleed, as in the case of the gentleman you talked about, it could kill someone. Um, I think the hallmark of the LAPD using less lethals in these situations is that they are totally untrained. And in this instance, they are responding to a demonstration that is highly critical of the police. So they're being asked to set aside their emotions and their biases. And what's clear is they, they didn't do that and they couldn't do it. Um, so one of the things that we think is really important is uh, that the use of less lethals in this situation be restricted. But we have a couple of people who were injured when the police shot those 40 millimeter rounds into a crowd of protesters who were running away. So I'll tell you what the training was in this instance. In 2018, they apparently did um, uh, incident control and de-escalation training. Everybody had this three or four hour unit. Some people were trained on the 40 millimeter. That was about one hour, less than one hour. Some people were just given the instruction manual and the weapon oh, <laughs> and said, shoot. <laughs> um, what, one of the other things that, that some of the officers said, well, the 40 millimeter has a sight on it and the sight is three inches above the barrel. So that's why we hit people in the head. Wrong. Because from the waist to the top of your head is more than three inches. So it's every excuse in the book. I will tell you that the two people who shot the, the Marine have been on the force 15 and 18 years, I believe. They, they would have gone through the 2018 training, 
but they have said that they had no training. And I think part of that is that some pe all people got was uh, a booklet and said, you know, and a simulator. Um, and so they didn't understand what this was. And people, you know, officers have said they got handed this weapon on the morning of the protest. They had no idea how to use it. And then there's the police use of batons. We call them clubs. The official policy I learned is that officers can use batons to push people in large crowds they are trying to disperse. But they are allowed to hit people with batons only when those individuals present a danger. Have I got that right? Yes, you have that right. And the, the, the viral video on all of this, I disagree with the report on this because the report said they didn't find any evidence of, of violations of policy on the baton. The viral video about the May 30th protest of Black Lives Matter at Pan Pacific Park, the officers are seen whacking people, not pushing it. The, the pushing is a jabbing motion, but in order to do that, you have to have a place where people can go. And people were surrounded by the police. So there was nowhere for them to go. And yet the police were whacking them in the shins and um, and whacking them in the arms um, and literally strikes like you were you were, you know, going to hit a baseball. Those kinds of strikes are clearly uh, hard. The biggest problem with the strategy the police leadership ordered for many people was that they didn't distinguish between the peaceful demonstrators and what the report calls criminal elements who were throwing objects, creating violence, or looting. The police arrested and detained hundreds, eventually thousands of peaceful demonstrators and didn't do enough to arrest the people who were violent or the organized looters who were taking advantage of the police attention to the peaceful demonstrators. You know, if it weren't um, so sad, it would be funny. It was like a Keystone Cop movie, watching the videos of the police with protesters sitting cross-legged in the street, chanting. They were, you know, very, very peaceful. And a block away, and not even that sometimes, were all these looters. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're thinking, how about putting officers on that street and having fewer officers surrounding the people sitting cross-legged on the street peacefully. So here's what Chief Moore said at a press conference when that the video of that event in particular went viral. Chief Moore said, when we are doing a task, we can only focus on that task at the time. And so, as many of us said, one reporter said, really, Chief? Shouldn't you have focused on the looters then? and let people continue to march through the streets chanting. Um, the looters were completely unattached to any protest activity. If you can't walk and chew gum at the same time, maybe what you could do is walk and let the gum chewing wait till later. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it's just a, a totally uh, unacceptable excuse and a uh, terrifying example of how misplaced the police effort was because their focus was on their enemies and their enemies were the protesters. You know, I have to say, you and I have been doing these interviews on the radio for a long time now. In 2000, when the Democratic National Convention was in L.A. downtown and there were protests there, 
You were working as an official observer when the LAPD attacked demonstrators. Uh, um, And uh, I remember asking you in a live on-air interview, what was it like to be shot between the eyes by a police rubber bullet? You probably remember that incident. Uh, I remember that incident very well. Um, It was terrifying. I, I, I didn't know what had happened. That was the first time the LAPD used rubber bullets against protesters. Another woman who was on top of a flatbed truck, she lost an eye. And had they uh, had the bullet that struck me, uh, it struck me right between the eyes at the top, the bridge of my nose. Had that bullet been a half an inch either way, I would have lost an eye. Um, So I was really lucky. All I had, in addition to a pretty bad concussion, was a fractured, a subdural fracture of the nasal cavity, which gave me the most excruciating sinus headaches for for probably um, six months after that. Um, But but I was I was lucky in that particular instance for the woman who lost her eye. And for me, we were the two most serious injuries, I think, in 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 2000. The officers were not properly, uh, well, they were trained. They they knew they were supposed to shoot the rubber bullets at the ground. They shot at our heads. And I actually have a, um, a photograph in my office. He actually captured the moment of the officer pointing his gun up at this woman. Mm-hmm. And so I keep that in my eye along with, uh, in my office, along with a picture of my um, my injury to um, remind me uh, what I do. But just to 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 let your listeners know, that night, the reason I wasn't at the front line at that point when I got shot from 80 feet away by an officer across Olympic Boulevard, the reason that I was not at the front line was because I already had a concussion because an officer on horseback had, had whacked me in the back of the head with a baton and two horses had trampled me. So I was trying to avoid injury standing 80 feet away, and I got shot between the eyes. And you may recall, you may recall that uh, after the LAPD Rampart scandal in 2001, the LAPD was put into receivership by the Department of Justice. We had a federal judge overseeing the LAPD for 12 years, one of the longest consent decrees in American history. Under the consent decree, the LAPD agreed to undertake dozens of reforms to check officers' conduct and subject the department to regular audits by a monitor. That ended in 2013, eight years ago. In the process, we got a new reforming police chief, Charlie Beck. They made a big deal about recruiting people of color and and women. We were told then the LAPD had changed. So now... We are back to um, the the dispute that I have with some of my friends, Connie Rice in particular, is whether we are back to Daryl Gates, whether we are back to Bernie Parks, or whether we are back to Ed Davis. <laughs> pick, pick your evil here. 35 years later, we're back here again. They have shown over and over they cannot do it. Well, the LA Times reported on this story, quote, lawsuits drove much of the meaningful change the LAPD has implemented after heavy-handed and undisciplined responses to past protests, close quote. Right now, you're one of the attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in a lawsuit against the city of LA. Uh, Tell us about that lawsuit. 
so Black Lives Matter is uh, a lawsuit about the um, uh, the events of basically May 29th. I think it's the first night in L.A. through um, June 3rd when they when the city stopped the curfew and stopped uh, the mass arrest. These were the George Floyd protests, and um, there were about around 4,000 people arrested. And we've alleged that all of them had their rights violated when they were uh, arrested and held for hours on these buses, buses with no air filtration, no ventilation. Um, the windows were deliberately kept closed. Everybody was handcuffed. People's hands were turning blue. People still have nerve damage from it. Um, there were no bathrooms. I know the police are saying that, well, people were only held on average one or two hours. That simply isn't true. Some of the people who were arrested in one area of the city, such as Hollywood, were driven out to Van Nuys. Anybody who drives in Los Angeles knows that would take you longer to get out there. When some of the people were driven out to Van Nuys and there was, or, or some other place in the valley, there was no room there to do this. So they were driven down to the harbor. Mm. And people remained on the bus driving around the city. You know, a lot of people were brought to closer locations. So we are seeking damages and we are seeking change. Uh, we've also moved to limit or prohibit the use of less lethals. We think that 40 millimeters have no place in this and that um, uh, there is no reason to shoot people, uh, to disperse them. We are challenging the fact that people were kettled, which is a, a, the, the term that we use. And it comes from actually how the British policed the Irish. Um, it was the black kettle. They would surround them um, with police. And that's where the term comes from. We are challenging uh, all of those things. We are challenging the fact that people were taken into custody when they should have been released on an infraction. And as we've said to the, to the Los Angeles Times, which asked us for an estimate of the value of the case, we think this case is, is, is probably going to cost the city about $40 million. And that's a very modest amount for, for everybody. And some people were very seriously injured. We'll be negotiating those injuries separately as we did in the May Day case. One woman had her jaw fractured. Uh, people were, as you pointed out earlier, people were hospitalized with head wounds. The, the Marine, it has a separate case, but we have other people in our case who were hospitalized with head wounds. And it is, uh, it's just um, stunning to me that we could be here again the other thing, uh, and I just want to make this really clear, is that we've litigated and over and over, is the dispersal order. The dispersal order has to be heard. You have to give people a legitimate chance to leave and tell them how to leave. And this was the core issue in the Ferguson case, that the inexperienced incident commander there um, was uh, just arrived and five minutes later gave a dispersal order that uh, was totally inaudible for almost everybody who was there. Um, and when people thought they were complying with it, he decided they weren't complying. And so he started chasing them and had the police chase them. And, you know, I think most of us, if the police start chasing you, your instinct is going to be to run. Yeah. <laughs> and then it sort of, it sort of compounds from there. So we thought that, that after that, you know, it would be a little bit differently. And in one of life's small ironies, um, the city paid the settlement in the Ferguson protest case from 2014, the day after George Floyd was murdered. Carol Sobel, she's one of the civil rights attorneys representing Black Lives Matter in its lawsuit against the LAPD. Carol, 
Thanks for everything you do. And thanks for talking with us today. I hope the next time we talk about something different, we don't have to come and talk about this again. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 